Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 18 through verse 27. Mark 12, beginning in verse 18, God's holy word. Once again, give your attention to its reading. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Let us pray. So there are days or seasons in life when it seems like you are getting it from all sides. You have problems at work, drama in the family, a mix-up with the IRS. You have some health issues, but they messed up your medication, your hot water heater blew, the car's in the shop, and your phone is on the fritz. You cannot seem to catch a break even for a moment. Well, our Lord is having one of these days. It's still the same day in the temple, and his opponents are coming at him relentlessly from every direction. The priests challenged his authority. The Pharisees hoped Jesus would be an imperialist. The Herodians wanted Jesus to be a zealot. They tried to paint Jesus as too conservative or too liberal, anything to get him into trouble. Well, this set of waves is not done yet, as another party attempts to crash on Jesus and wipe him out. Though as we've seen, Jesus is able to take these hostile attacks and turn them into fundamental lessons for our lives in the church united to him. So from what we know in the first century, Judaism in Palestine consisted of four sects or parties. Now we have two, maybe three parties, Democrat, Republican, Independents, but they have four main ones. We dealt with two of these previously, the Pharisees and the Zealots. The Herodians were too small, so they didn't really count. The third party we never really bump into in the New Testament. These are the Essenes who lived like those those at Qumran. Now, these sects were more religious than political, but both issues were included, as well as other factors like socioeconomic class. We could even call them four denominations. Though the dividing line between the two parties was a bit porous and they were in constant motion. Thus it's hard to make any hard and fast generalizations about these groups. Nevertheless, the fourth and final sect 
enters the scene to take a swing at our Lord, the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were the smallest of the parties, and they were the most elite. Their membership consisted of mostly of high priests, the religious highborn and rich. Now, not all priests were Sadducees, but Sadducees were mostly priests. Yet the most standout attribute was their theology. For example, the Sadducees did not believe in fate or providence. They denied that God controlled everything. In contrast to the Pharisees, who loved their oral tradition of the elders, the Sadducees rejected oral tradition. They held only to the written word of God, particularly the Torah, or the first five books. Interestingly, though, we're also told that the Sadducees held that God didn't really care that much whether we were good or bad. Morality was more man's choice or custom. Therefore, they had a reputation of being ugly and mean towards one another and towards others. Furthermore, the Sadducees denied that humans had an immortal soul. Death brought our termination. They rejected there being rewards or punishment in Hades. And they did not believe in angels or spirits. And last of all, not surprisingly, they repudiated the resurrection. No resurrection of the body, no resurrection of any kind, and no life everlasting. Hence, as you can tell from their doctrine, the Sadducees were the most Hellenized. That is, they had the most in common with Greek or pagan ideas in their own theology. Now, every party was influenced by Greek culture to some extent, but the Sadducees were the most. In terms of doctrine, the Pharisees were the Reformed and Evangelicals of the day, where the Sadducees were the high-class liberals. Worldly ideas of unbelief had thoroughly permeated their theology and practice. Now, we're quite familiar with how Jesus interacted with conservative and mostly orthodox theology of the Pharisees. Well, now we get to witness how he deals with the liberal doctrines of the Sadducees. Of course, they are the powers to be, and so the Sadducees want to see Jesus go down just as much as anyone else. Thus, the question they have for our Lord is weaponized. They don't really care about the truth. They bring up the topic of leveret marriage. Uh, or they, they bring up this topic. And for this leveret marriage, they quote or roughly paraphrase the law from Deuteronomy 25, and they hint at the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, where leveret marriage was a key. Now, this law seems quite strange to us, very ancient, but this regulation sought to remedy the unfortunate situation of a husband dying without kids. He kicked the bucket, being childless, and left behind a widow. So then, the brother, his brother or nearest relative, would marry the dead man's wife or widow, and the firstborn child would take the name of the dead man. And the reasons for this practice were several. One, it raised up a child for the childless uh, dead man and so preserved the father's name in that child. Two, it kept the family estate of the dead man in the family. For if the widow remarried outside the clan, the family estate might be lost. Thus, it held the family inheritance in the family. 
Third, levirate marriage protected the man from the most severe curse of being cut off. Under the law, to die an untimely death without kids was a sign of God's ultimate curse, forsaken by God in this life and the next. So, by some unfortunate events, the dead man dropped off, or looked appeared to be cut off, but he actually wasn't. Hence, Leverett Marriage stepped in to say that the man's death was accidental. He was not actually cut off. Though the Sadducees bring up this law not for itself per se, but to disprove another point. Thus, they tell a judicial parable, a legal story to test the logical ramifications of this law. And they spin the parable of the seven brothers for the one bride. Yes, once upon a time, there were seven brothers, and the firstborn found a fine lass and settled down. However, before the nursery was painted, he got gored by the bull and died. The brothers were from a good, dedicated, Pharisaic family. So brother number two dutifully married the other, uh, his elder brother's widow. He will produce an heir for his brother. But then two weeks after the wedding, he caught pneumonia and died. Brother number three came off the bench and kept the law. Yet at the wedding reception, he tried to break up a fight, took a fatal blow in the head, and so it went. The donkey kicked number four in the noggin. Number five had a bit too much and fell off the roof. The the robber stabbed number six in a mugging, and number seven died on a chicken, choked on a chicken bone. The seven brothers marry one bride and not a single kid from them all. Lemony Snicket couldn't come up with a more unfortunate series of events. Indeed, at this point, even if you're not superstitious, you're starting to suspect foul play from the wife. But alas, her widowhood did not last long, for she got bit by a black widow and succumbed. The grim reaper got them all. Then, though the Sadducees tell this legal parable to prove a point, it's a setup for their real question. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? All seven married her legally, so who will be her hubby in the resurrection? Now this story is far-fetched and over the top. It is unlikely, but it's still possible. This could happen. Therefore, the realistic possibility of this story makes ridiculous and absurd the situation in the resurrection. If this is earthly possible, then it makes impossible the problem in heaven. For there's no way a wife can have seven husbands at once, and you cannot figure out which brother would get her hand in the resurrection. Hence, this law proves that there can be no resurrection. Moses wrote this law rationally only for the earth, and its logical outcome repudiates the resurrection. By this law, Moses did not believe in or teach the resurrection, and so neither should we. This is the argument of the Sadducees. By the logic of the law, they want to make Jesus look ludicrous. They hope to shame him with stupidity. By their rationality, they color Jesus as the fool. According to their rational measurement, by the obvious legal outworking of this law, Jesus, in his doctrine of the resurrection, is simply silly, 
laughable, preposterous, and absurd. And isn't this the common method of worldly unbelief? The world likes to peg us and our theology as just dumb, as mad irrationality. Yet, from the Sadducees' argument, it's evident that they are disingenuous. They are not operating with basic integrity. They ask a question about the resurrection, which they don't even hold to. They're not interested in the truth, but just to shame our Lord. This is dishonest academic dialogue. It fails proper neighborly love and kind respect for fellow image bearers. Also, the narrowness of their question weakens its strength. If having a wife, or if a wife having multiple hubbies is a problem for the resurrection, then what about polygamy and remarriage? What about David and all his wives? Or just a widower who remarried once? They're only worried about the woman with more than one husband in her life, which further shows their bias. Their question is not an honest inquiry after the truth about marriage and the resurrection in light of Genesis 1 and 2. But again, this is so often how it goes with questions of the world. Truth and morality are not their concern, just, to, just a chance to make the church and scripture look like a farce, ludicrous. Well, this could be a, this could be a situation where you do not throw your pearls before swine. Jesus could choose not to answer these fools according to their folly. However, another issue, there's another issue still on the table, which is our Lord's authority. The Sadducees hope to show Jesus as an incompetent teacher who has no authority. Therefore, he chooses to defend his ability to teach and interpret God's word and truth. And note how he opens up. Right out of the gate, he just tells them that they're wrong. Or better, you're deceived. What do you say about the resurrection? Wrong. He buzzes them as incorrect. Sometimes you just have to call an error what it is wrong. Thus, Jesus pulls out his red pen and marks their theology of the resurrection as false. And he even gives a reason for their unsound and invalid theology. He says, you do not know scripture or the power of God. These religious authorities don't even have a first-grade understanding of the scriptures that they're supposedly our experts on. And if they think death is mightier than God, they do not have a clue about our Lord and his mighty power. And again, the likeness between the Sadducees and modern liberal theologians is uncanny. Today, liberal theologians deny the virgin birth and the resurrection because God is unable to go against the laws of nature as, quote, science defines them. These theologians hold distinguished chairs of religion and theology at prestigious universities, but all their learning has only made them ignorant of the biblical text and truth. Sometimes in the church's apologetic against liberal theology, we just have to say wrong. Our Lord, though, continues to defend the doctrine of resurrection against these highfalutin Sadducees. First, he deals with their legal question. So what about the one bride who married the seven brothers? 
well, the Sadducees' perceived problem doesn't apply because there is no marriage in heaven. Men will not woo ladies, and young women will not say yes to wedding bands in heaven. The glorified saints will be like angels who do not marry. Marriage is for this age and not for the age to come. In this way, our Lord condemns the Sadducees as literalists, as biblicists. The Old Testament foretells of heaven through earthly images, an ideal promised land with feasting and famine. But these are metaphors, not literal descriptions. Heaven is like these, but also far above them as well. You cannot take an earthly institution like marriage and just cut and paste it into glory. And so also, we should not overread this truth from our Lord. There will not be marriage in heaven, this is clear, but what does this mean for your relationship with your spouse or kids? Will you not even know your husband in heaven? Well, we do not know. The Lord doesn't clarify all our curiosities. And yet, if you're shining like angels in the resurrection, details like marriage and food don't really matter. When you get to stand before the light of Christ's face, the lace on the table and napkins make no difference. Christ will take care of it, and it will be better than you can imagine. Jesus, though, now goes on to address the more fundamental error of the Sadducees. Their problem is not really about the law of leveret marriage and how it works in heaven. Rather, their issue is that they reject the resurrection outright. Life after death, bodily resurrection, they see this as utter nonsense. And so he goes after their denial of the resurrection. And to do so, he quotes the law itself from the book of Exodus. Again, from what we know, the Sadducees held mainly to the law as authoritative and nothing else. Thus, Jesus quotes their authoritative text against them. Have you read the book of Exodus? Do you know the passage about Moses and the burning bush? For there God told Moses that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, we scratch our heads how this can be a proof text for the resurrection, but this is because we, too, have a bit too much modernism in our heads. Our Lord's reasoning here is very Old Testament, but it's also very biblical. For one, it is obvious from the passage that when God says this to Moses, that the patriarchs are physically dead. For almost 400 years, even their bones are dust. To this title, the God of Abraham, and so on, is covenantal in meaning. It means the Lord is the covenantal God and partner of Abraham, and that this covenant relationship is still in existence. The death of Isaac and Jacob did not cease or invalidate their relationship with God. Third, Jesus uses life and death here in their full Old Testament meaning. In the Old Testament, life and death was not just having a heartbeat. It wasn't confined to the science of our biology. Rather, life and death included one's nearness to God. If you were away from the temple, opposed by enemies, or your prayers were not being answered, you had one foot in Sheol. Away from God, you were in the clutches of death, 
even if you had a strong pulse. Thus, the curse of exile, being forsaken, was more death-like than being physically dead. So also, the closer you drew to God, being in God's uh, temple, the more you became alive. Life became more real, more substantial, more true in the presence of God. Thus, as the psalmist say, one day in the temple courts is better or like a thousand years. Those earthly moments with God was an experience of eternal life. Therefore, when Jesus says about the dead patriarchs that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, he's using life and death in this fuller sense. The Lord is declaring that though physically dead, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are near to God in his presence, and so therefore very much alive. In this way, Jesus is appealing to the reality of the interim state. He's thinking about what happens to us when we die. Again, there is the unfortunate and widespread worldly teaching that the Hebrews didn't believe in the afterlife, that when they died, that was it, or they just all ended up in gloomy Sheol. This is a liberal error that has trickled down even into most evangelical theology. But this is far from the truth. Sure, we don't have a lot of details about what the ancient Hebrews believed about the afterlife, and they don't talk about it with the words of the New Testament. And yet their belief and confidence in the afterlife and the resurrection was robust and unwavering. It's just that they gave expression to their hope in the everlasting by their burial practices. To be gathered to your kin, to sleep with the fathers, these are the funeral idioms for the saints being blessed in death to be with the Lord. This meant that though their bodies were laid in the tomb, their souls were were with the Lord and very much alive. Hence, to prove the resurrection, Jesus establishes that at death, the saints go to live with God. And this is the same argumentation we find elsewhere. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says to be away from the body is to be with Christ to await the resurrection. In Philippians, he says to die is gain as it means we are closer to our Lord. In Revelation 6, the dead saints are given a white robe of Sabbath rest and told to wait until the final day of the Lord. And so our Lord establishes that by virtue of the covenant, the dead patriarchs go to live with God. And being alive with God in death means there must be a resurrection. Now, there's nothing particularly offensive about the soul and body being separated for a time, but it is unnatural. God created us body and soul and redeemed us soul and body. Our souls, with the Lord, await the bodily resurrection. Thus, Jesus defends the resurrection, then, from the universal burial practices and faith of the Old Testament saints. Sure, the unbelieving Sadducees might scoff at this proof, but our Lord is not limited by the unbelieving logic of the hostile world. Besides, Jesus' defense of the resurrection is supremely beneficial to us. 
Unbelievers may value little the rational evidence for the resurrection, but what is rubbish to them is pure gold to us. For how can your faith be certain of the resurrection? It has assurance because when you die, you become more alive to God. Think of what you gain at death being in covenant with God. You are perfected of your sins. You are free from the evils of this fallen world. You see the resurrected Christ. You enter your Sabbath rest. And you get to join the heavenly choir of angels. Sure, this might not be your final glory, but it is marvelous and beyond expectation. Furthermore, this argument for the resurrection, based on being with God in death, was proved by Christ himself. On the cross, your Savior experienced ultimate death. He felt the eternal pains of hell due for us for our sins. Yet while Jesus was breathing, the curse of everlasting God-forsakenness was poured into him. Yet before he gave up his spirit, Jesus told that thief on his right hand, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus tasted death. His body laid under the power of death. But the soul of our Savior went to be with the Father in paradise when he finished his work on the cross. And since his righteous soul entered heaven, death could not hold his body. Being alive to the Father, Jesus resurrected bodily in a short three days. The Old Testament saints, their experience of going to be with God to await the resurrection foreshadowed Christ. And our same benefit in death looks back to Christ's resurrection and forward to our own. This is why the doctrine of resurrection is central to our faith, our life, and our hope. And it's why we should defend it, as Jesus does here. This is why the resurrection is more precious than diamond and diamonds and rubies. For the resurrection of Christ won for you and seals to you that God is your God. In life and in death, body and soul, now and forever. And to belong to God, he will never let you go. Thus praise the Lord for the resurrection of Christ by which he took hold of us. And praise the Lord that our deaths now in Christ are gain. When we go to be with him to enter our Sabbath rest and wait that day when we will be raised bodily and live with him forever.